Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Welcome everyone to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I'm joined by our esteemed guest, Courtney Pullen. Thank you so much for joining us today, Courtney. It's my pleasure, thank you. And I'm also joined by my co-host, Diana Clark. Hello everybody. (laughs) For the audience members today, I'm just gonna give a little bit of background on Courtney. Um, Courtney is the president of the Pullen Consulting Group. He's offered individual and family coaching to people for years in business and management consulting, leadership development, communication, and team building. He conducts numerous workshops. He's been published um, in his book, Intentional Wealth, How Families Build Legacies of Stewardship and Financial Health is available. Um, And he's also an expert in family wealth dynamics and on the faculty at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. So Courtney, I'm gonna get right in. Normally I like to lob a very softball question over first, but I'm gonna get in with a more difficult one. Um, which is a question that we hear a lot from clients around, you know, what age do we tell our kids about what we have? When are they ready to hear about how much money our family has? Um, I'm sure it's one you face. What are your thoughts on this? Well, your listeners probably won't like my answer. Um, And that's because I, I don't think we can start early enough. So when there, there are really two parts of your question, Arden, is that, one, what is it that we can be teaching our kids about money? And then the transparency question of when, when do we share the balance sheet? So I'm not talking about sharing the balance sheet at this moment in time, but one of the things I really learned from doing a lot of financial parenting workshops over the years is that I, I, I had this awareness that was very naive uh, that I held this belief, but I thought all I needed to do was give parents tools to be successful at financial parenting. And then what I started learning is that they needed more than just tools. They needed to be really clear about how are they being as parents financially, because kids are watching us as parents and what we do and how we behave. So it's really the key is starting at the very young ages to be very intentional, very conscious for the, for the parents. What is your relationship with your wealth? Is it a balanced relationship or are you on the entitlement side or the denial side? And that really needs to be in order before you can have the financial transparency conversations. And I'm really looking for teachable moments. So it's, so often we as parents want to sit the kids down to talk about money or to talk about you know the assets or whatever but really it's those moments when the kids blindside us so to speak as parents and say are we rich and what what do you say to that so you need to be prepared for those kinds of questions and we need to be talking about um, how money works how to save how to share how to spend um, charitable giving, 
And all that needs to be discussed, in my opinion, at a very young age. Um, yeah, I don't think you can do it too young. It is an uncomfortable conversation for many families to discuss wealth, as you know, and to discuss spending, as you know. We can start young, but what are the tools we use to begin the conversation with our little kids? I'm a big fan of being very intentional about talking about money. Um, you know, I, I think most families have done this. I know that we did this with our kids when they're little, the classic thing of you go on vacation and you give all the kids, you know, 25 bucks and say, it's yours to spend how you want in this week while we're on Cape Cod or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. I'm dating myself when I say 20 or $25, but it probably needs to be more today. But anyway, for me, it was 20 or $25. And we raised five kids and they have very distinctly different money personalities. So the girls would really be looking for a good value and a good deal, but sometimes at, to the extent that they weren't having fun, um, they would put it off, put it off, put it off. Whereas our son would spend the money in the first five minutes on a cheap toy that he would hit his sisters with and then be broken within hours. So, okay. That's a teachable moment. What did you learn from that experience and what do you want to be applying in your life? And to be talking to them about how do you save for things that are important to you? One of the, the challenges I think with wealthy families is that wealthy families have extraordinary wealth so they can afford to spend anything that they want for a, a new instrument or new tennis shoes or new whatever. And I think it's really good for kids even in wealthy families, to have to save money up for that, that new toy, that new thing, and really understand how do you save money and um, when do you want to share money and what's spending look like. So it's, it's all that stuff rolled into one, I think. I have a funny story. I'd love to get your take on it. When my son was probably seven, he was online looking for, he collected ancient video game equipment and he saw one on ebay and he looked at it and he said you're not going to believe this this is really rare and it's only 15 dollars." and i looked closer at the ebay ad and it was the box for the video game not the actual video game and i let him order it and when it arrived and it was just a box he lost it. I thought his brains were going to come out his ears, but I saw that as a beautiful lesson. Sometimes, I mean, some people would call me cruel for letting that happen. What do you think? Oh, I loved it. Um, I'm a big fan of natural logical consequences. And what a beautiful example of paying attention and not getting seduced by something. And oh, what a, a great teachable moment. That is, once he finished freaking out, I, I'm a big fan of natural logical consequences. Okay. So what do you do? You know, I'm always amazed given the amount of information available on the internet that families, particularly um, the older generation, still somehow believes that they are able to sort of hide who their family is and, and what their net worth is. Given where we are in the world, I feel like it's less and less likely that that's true. But you know, what do you do if you have an older generation who you're working with and they're saying, I don't want them to know anything 
until they're 35, or I, you know, I want this hidden in some trust in a far off state. And it, it comes all at a lump sum upon their 60th birthday that really wants to delay the conversation. What I try to do is appeal to the control part of them that, that we all have, which is, do you want to be in front of this or you want to be behind this? Um, and this day and age, your kids know about the money. Uh, they may not know it the exact dollar amount, but they have a good sense because they can research and find it out. And they're also watching how you live your life. You know, it's a, it doesn't go unnoticed by them that mom or dad bought a $200,000 car. So that's all being filed away for them. So when I say appeal to the control part of them is really saying, since they are quickly learning the information, do you want to be guiding that source of that information and the input of that and the effect on the kids? Or do you want them to just get it all figured out on social media and then you're left to pick up the pieces? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to switch to your book for a second. In it, called Intentional Wealth, How Families Build Legacy of Stewardship and Financial Health. I had to read that because I was surely going to mess that up. You do discuss the value of family legacies and intentional family values. How have you seen wealth help or even hinder the process of instilling values in children? Wealth disconnected from values and family governance can be dangerous. Um, and what I mean by that is that I mentioned this, it, it, to quote myself in the book, is that what wealth does, financial wealth that is, is it can really exacerbate pre-existing fault lines. Mm -hmm. So if there's a little bit of disharmony and tension in the family system and you throw a lot of money on it, then it's going to exacerbate that. So that's just something really important to keep in mind in finding what are your values and what's your mission or your philosophy as a family, really defining what's the purpose of our wealth. So it's really important for all that to be defined. So what about those families that accrue wealth in one generation, right? And they have not even come to terms with having their own wealth? How do they teach this financial literacy and financial values systems below them? How do we engage that? That's a great question. And again, I don't think you, the listeners may not like the answer, but is what I learned early on in teaching parents about these skills is that until they have a fairly balanced relationship with their wealth, and they feel fairly comfortable and pretty empowered about the wealth, then they can be teaching the money skills and the financial parenting skills. But those tools taught without consciousness, without intentionality are gonna fall flat. It may be even backfire. So the key to your point is they need to first deal with their own money scripts, their own money issues that we all have, it's normal. Yeah. Sort of on that topic, you know, how do you deal with the issue of fairness and equality within a family system? And I'm thinking of two different types of examples. So one is, to your point, the, the parent who maybe grew up more modestly but has now flown privately because that's what the wealth enables them to do, but is also very concerned because they're seeing just the 
starts of entitlement in their children. So, you know, how do you still enjoy, how do the parents enjoy the vacation that they hope for or live in the lifestyle they um, they want to enjoy, but at the same time still promote some degree of um, equality amongst their children or not even equality, but some sense of earning something. I, I don't know if that question is clear, but um, so that's one question. And the second part of that question is more, how do you deal with differing needs within sibling groups? So the child who goes off and has a very successful career and doesn't need as much support as somebody else who has a more modest career and actually could benefit from additional support. How do you answer those questions for families? So let me start with Arden with the earning side of that question, if I may, is that it reminds me of one of the first YPO chapters I ever spoke to when we were talking about some of these issues, one of the people said the classic line, I'm just a, a member of the Lucky Sperm Club. And, you know, everyone laughs and everything. But when you really unpack that, that's a dangerous assumption. It's saying it's, I'm not valuable in my own way. I, I didn't earn it. I just happened to be born into the right family. So it's so important in life that even in particularly, I think, in wealthy families is that we need to not deprive our children of the opportunity to earn. We develop a lot of confidence from, from earning something, from having skin in the game. One of my favorite uh, parenting quotes is by D.W. Winnicott. And he said, the primary job of a parent is to optimally frustrate a child. So you want them to develop their own grit, their own muscle, their own sense of, of well-being and autonomy in the world. And it's important that we don't deprive them of that opportunity. So that's the earning side. Mm -hmm. So the equal and fair side, again, I have a, my blunt assessment of that is life isn't fair. Um, and the earlier we figure that out, the better. Um, I'm gonna make, certain allowances because you're a school teacher versus you're the CEO of a company versus, you know, whatever, versus you have a learning disability versus whatever. And um, don't come to me for fair, mm. but do come to me for a thoughtful, intentional response to the circumstances. I like that. Nip that conversation right out mm. in the butt, right? Just say life isn't fair. Economics yep. aren't fair and treatment might be fair, but not necessarily equal. Right, exactly. Yeah. So have you encountered families, continuing on this thread, have you encountered families that have had large expenditures for behavioral health needs, such as substance use disorders or other mental health disorders that were looking to sort of equalize the expenditures that they made because they felt like it wasn't fair? Young adult kids in uh, rehab or young adult kids in programs, wilderness programs that, you know, are gonna be in this programs for six or nine months, a year, sometime in one case for up to two years. And that obviously has a significant impact on the family. And what I, my bias is that 
you don't say to the rest of the kids, okay, we spent $100,000 on your brother in rehab, so we're going to also spend $100,000 on the rest of you to give you something to even the balance sheet. Um, again, I still think that's realistic. I, I think what we need to do as families is have a very intentional conversation about yeah, it's, we've spent $100,000 on your brother for rehab. And that's a, a commitment that's consistent with our values in our family is we're not going to let any of you hang out to dry. We're going to provide necessary resources. So for your brother, it may be rehab. For you, it may be, you know, paying for grad school or whatever. But I really think it's dangerous to get into that balance sheet conversation about we have to make everything um, fair and equal. Thank you for I that, because I think that families get very confused about that. They see the expenditures they make for rehab or for other treatment modalities, and they think that it's actually taking money out of the family, whereas, in fact, it's keeping the family healthy. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I think, my, you know, my dad was one of those parents who really was nervous about all of us feeling like we got equal and he actually did have a little accounting like a write-up that showed where who got what and i and he gave it to all three of us siblings and at the time i remember thinking this is ridiculous that he thinks he needs to do this my other brother and i were highly functional humans living in the world working and supporting ourselves and we had benefited from his generosity over the years and college educations and you know, first homes and all of the rest of it. So I, I think it was all well intentioned, but I'm I'm it's nice to hear just the very straightforward way you say, come to me for an intentional response, but don't come to me with the expectation of fair being equal. Cause I think that is much more in line with what's reality for most family systems. Absolutely. So I have a maybe an uncomfortable question, but are there family systems that you think just can't be helped or you've been involved and you've had to say, I don't think I can be of service to you anymore and actually had to let go of a client? You know, Arden, boy, it's a good question. And there, my mind goes two places with that. Um, the first is that one of the things I've noticed in my own self, it was, it's been a big learning for me is that in my family system, um, I was overly responsible. I over-functioned. And I've done that a great deal in my adult life. So therefore, in my work as an advisor or counselor to families, I found myself, those families that were really in a lot of trouble, as I was so concerned and so alarmed by the train wreck that seemed to be inevitable, they're often sharing to me that there's going to be a train wreck. So I made the naive assumption that that meant they wanted to do something about it. And then I would jump into action and I would over function. I would be very helpful and give them all sorts of resources. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I'm looking back and realizing <laughs> I'm working harder than the family. So that's just been a big lesson for me is that I need to do a better job of really pacing and not putting myself in the, the position of over-functioning. And a part, an important part of that, which is really part of the heart of your question, is that there are really some families that um, aren't going to change. No matter what resources we throw at them, they're just not motivated to change. And I've needed to walk away from certain families for that very reason. Mm -hmm. And it's heartbreaking, it's hard to do. 
I agree. I have had a similar situations. So I'm going to give you a quote, and I would love to hear your thoughts about it as well. So Desmond Tutu wrote in his book, God Has a Dream, that pain and struggle are the anvil upon which character is forged, where our children learn empathy and compassion. What do you think of that? I love it. That's what I think of that. That's just <laughs> perfect. I wish I would have said that. I know, me yeah, too. I, I, it, it just says it all. I mean, when you look at the research on families that have, it's back to my optimal frustration comment, is that when you look at families that we've all worked with that are in that second, third, fourth, fifth generation, they're getting further away from the core values of the family and the legacy, um, often they're missing grit and resilience. So mm -hmm. it's so important. I mean, that quote just speaks to all that. Um, I love it. We need to be, as parents, very intentional about how can we support them in developing grit and that we need to be a learning family. We need to be making mistakes and learning from our mistakes and I, I feel I'm so self-conscious about the quote. I feel like anything I say at this point is going to just be <laughs> So, but how do you build grit within your own family? Use your own experience. How, give us an example of where you promoted grit among one of your children. Oh man. Um, since my son will never hear this podcast, I'll tell a story about him. Um, <laughs> he, I love him dearly, and he's a boy is a piece of work sometimes. So um, his sisters are all overachievers, so they had these weighted GPAs of you know four point two or however the hell you can do that. But anyway, overachievers. He was just the opposite. And he had big dreams, like what university he wanted to go to a prestigious university. He did not have the grades for it. So what I got into was really micromanaging him. And we would sit down every Friday after school and look at the parent portal and look at his tests and scores. And just, I was doing a horrible job micromanaging him. So I'm listening to this parenting tape one weekend going up to a party in the mountains. And uh, the, the teacher of this was saying, to you parents that are out there micromanaging your children, um, let me make a prediction about, he's talking about sons in particular, is that 10 years from now, you and your wife are gonna be sitting at a holiday gathering and saying, why did our son marry such a witch? I, she is so controlling. Well, cause you trained him to be attracted to a witch that's controlling his every move, who's micromanaging. I just like, it was a wake up call for me. And literally the next morning when I saw Connor, I said, it's over, it's your grades. I told him the story and I said, they're your grades. I'm not micromanaging you anymore. I love you, you're a smart kid. I know you can come out of this, but it's on you, good luck. So his grades got worse. <laughs> it's like a test. And I'm like, I just held my breath. And it's like, no, nope. good luck, son. Your grades, if you need any help, let me know what help you want, but I'm not here to micromanage you. And he made it. He 
It was so funny because a, a, a turning point for him is all his sisters are getting invitations to apply to all these good schools. He did not get any of those invitations just to the military was all he got. <laughs> um, so thankfully his ACT scores were high enough that he got a little bit of interest in some state schools and that's what he did. And he ended up uh, successfully getting through school. And there was a turning point in colleges that he was an international studies major. And he said, dad, um, he transferred from Montana to Colorado to go to a new college. <laughs> And he said, um, we have new requirements here for me in, in order to be an international studies student, I have to take four years of Spanish. I'm waiting for, so therefore I'm changing my major to basket weaving, right? So he goes, so I'm hanging in there. I'm like, yes. And now he's the head of an international school in Guatemala and he's a damn teacher. I mean, who figured, yeah. you know? It ended, the story he's ends serving. well, but boy, he's what? He's serving. Isn't that what you yeah. would have wanted? Yeah. Oh, it's so, yeah, I'm so proud of him. It also probably took some grit on you and your wife's behalf to sit back, because I think I our clients experience the, especially in cases where there's behavioral health issues, but even not, part of the challenge is sitting back and saying, I know where this may go. And it's taking every ounce of strength I don't have to sit back and try and remain quiet and calm and not intervene on someone's behalf. Yeah, exactly. We really need to let our kids fail. I hate that. I do too. It sucks. <laughs> it really does. It is the hardest thing about being a parent. When I first had my son, a friend of mine who was wiser and older said to me, you have two jobs as a parent. And I'm like, I'm ready. Okay. And she said, one is to love them just because they breathe. And I'm like, yeah, that'll be easy. And she said, the second is to make sure they can function without you. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that one's going to kill me. So I really appreciate your sentiment today because it is hard even for parents who are conscious. Yep, yeah, indeed. Well, thank you, Courtney, for your candor, your humor, and I loved your examples. I always think it really brings to light the concepts we talk about. And I think I think we hear mostly from listeners that that's what they learn most from. So thank you oh, for good. joining us today. Oh, uh, thank you for having me. It was a delight being in conversation with you too. And thank you, Diana. Thank you to our listeners and our audience members today. And if you're so inclined, please give us a positive review and a, a five-star rating on your platform of choice. Thanks. And we look forward to you tuning in in our next episode. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.